Hebrews chapter number 11. We began last week with the first seven verses of Hebrews chapter 11, and we looked at the simplicity of faith. You know, faith responds to revelation. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so it seems as though at a time when the Word of God was uh, not complete and uh, men certainly knew of God and they knew of the Word of God and the, the words of God, if we want to call them that, um, they, their faith was simple. And I think that's appropriate, but as we continue through Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we go from God dealing with a society to God dealing with an individual. A very interesting transition takes place uh, from verse number 7 to verse number 8. Let's begin at verse number 8 tonight, and let's read down uh, to verse number 22. The Word of God says, "...by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time, and thank you for your word. Thank you for your people and their faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to hearts now. Help us to respond in faith and in obedience to your word. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we looked at the simplicity of faith. And we saw basically three different actions of faith, examples of faith, in the life of three individuals. In Abel we saw how faith worships. And faith does worship. Faith does put God in His proper place of prominence and reverence. We saw in Enoch faith walking. What it means to walk by faith and the walk of faith. And in Noah, we saw faith working. And understand that there's no reason in the life of the believer to place faith and works as enemies, one of the other. We have done that in response to heretical doctrine that was spread. The Bible nowhere promotes salvation by works. Nowhere. All through the Word of God, you see faith as the only means of coming and approaching to God. And it's heresy to claim that salvation can be attained by works. And so, in a knee-jerk response to that, what we've tried to do is divorce faith and works, one from each other, when the Bible presents it to us the exact opposite way. Uh, people say before, uh, we were talking this morning, I was talking to somebody, we were talking about faith and the idea of faith. 
and they were saying, well, you know, I just hope my, my faith was strong enough to save me and things of that sort. Here's the thing you have to understand. You're saved by faith, meaning the mode of salvation and approach to God is by faith. But it's not your faith that saves you. It's Jesus Christ that saves you. The only way to approach to Him is through and by faith. But it's Jesus Christ that saves you. Faith is not the be-all, end-all of it. We come to Him in faith, but He's the one that saves us. And so uh, there, there's nothing wrong with saying that we're saved by faith. The Bible presents it to us in that way. But what it means is the channel or mode through which we approach to God that He might save us is that of faith. But true biblical faith works. And in fact, the book of James puts that to us explicitly, uh, that true biblical faith is always evidenced by works. If you really believe God and if you really trust God, it'll affect and change your life. Anybody that says they've been saved but have not become a new creature, they're not being truthful. Now, that doesn't mean that they're perfect. doesn't mean they'll never make any mistakes. doesn't mean they won't backslide. But if there was no change that took place in you when you got saved, you didn't get saved. Because the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That doesn't mean you won't mess up and make mistakes, but it does mean something as big as God comes into your life, it changes you. It affects some things. And true biblical faith will bear witness through works. It will work. It will achieve some things. It will change us in a visible manner. This week I want us to take a few moments and I want us to look at the sojourning. Of faith. In chapter number 9, that word is used. By faith he sojourned. What does that mean to sojourn? Well, the word literally means uh, to journey in the idea of a, a short stay or a short period of time, to journey uh, in and through a place. It means to dwell temporarily at a place. You know what we call it sometimes today. We sometimes call it vacation. That's a sojourning, a trip that we might take into a place for a short period of time and for a distinct purpose. But what we really see in these verses that we've read tonight is we begin to see the birth of the Hebrew people. We see God dealing with Abraham as an individual. Whenever we approach in verse number 8, Hebrews chapter number 11, Abraham is in pagan darkness. He is, in, uh, he is a Chaldean. He is a Syrian ready to perish, the Bible calls it. God calls him out of that pagan darkness and does something in his life. By the time we get to chapter 22, the descendants of Abraham are now in another land of pagan darkness. The realization of the promises that God had made to them was not fulfilled in their lifetime. And they have come out of pagan darkness. Now they are going into a place, but there's something different now. Now they have faith as a people. God has been dealing with them as a people. And so in that land, we find that God prepared them for some things and accomplished some things in them. Now, it sort of sounds like me and you, doesn't it? When God saved us, He saved us out of pagan darkness. I mean, it may have been Western American religious paganism, but it was pagan nonetheless. God saved us out of pagan darkness. And yet here we are sojourning in this world in a place that is still steeped in pagan darkness. But there's a difference now for you and I. Now we have God in our life. Now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Now we've been born again and we're a changed individual. As a result of that, God's put some things in our life, just like He's taken some things out, to change us and make us what He'd have us to be. So I want us tonight to look at four things. I want you to notice first off the promise of faith that God gave to Abraham. Look at verse number 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obey. Faith always begins with the Word of God. And it began that way in Abraham's life. When God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to step out, come out from amongst your family and your kinfolk, and I'm going to send you to a place that you've never seen before, that you know not of. You're going to step out in faith, and I'm going to bring you there. That's where faith began. The only source for biblical faith is the Bible. There's lots of folks that say they have faith about things that the Bible doesn't say anything about. 
They may have wishes, they may have dreams, they may have hopes, but you can't have biblical faith about anything that the Bible does not address. Because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It's where a lot of this name-it-and-claim-it Christianity and this prosperity gospel preaching uh, is founded, is in trying to have faith in things that God never said anything about. God never said you were going to be rich in this life. Never said that. God never said you're never going to have problems in this life. I believe God has the ability to heal, and I've seen Him do it time and time and time again. But God never said anywhere that everybody's going to be healthy. Now, we can try to claim those things, but we're trying to claim something that God never claimed, that God never said unequivocally, this is free and open to all my children, it's the will of God for everybody, and so it's not true biblical faith. We can call it faith, we can cling to it like it's faith, we can call it anything we want to call it, we can say it's spiritual, but if it's not sourced in the Word of God, then it's not true biblical faith. Well, Abraham's uh, revelation of faith was founded in the Word of God. God called him to go out. And we see three things that he did as a response to this. Notice in verse 8, first thing he did was he stepped out in faith. I, I like to say this, that here Abraham trusted God with his past. Now you could imagine what it must have been like for Abraham. I do not know the circumstances that Abraham came out of. And the Bible doesn't really give a whole lot of detail about it. But I'll say this, uh, that he's definitely going from, in the world's mind, a place of stability into a place of instability. He had to let some things go to follow God. He had to leave out from his family. He had to leave out from his home. He had to leave out from his friends. There were things, and he had to make a decision with God and about God that I believe that the God whom I don't know is more valuable than the comfort that I do know. You know, that's what we've got to do as a matter of faith. And that's why it is faith is we've got to make the decision that the God whom having not seen, we love, we've got to make a decision about Him that He's more valuable than all the things the world can offer. I'm I'm saying if you're ever going to live by faith, you've got to make that decision. You've got to make up your mind that God's worth it. Abraham had to make up his mind that God was worth it. God was worth leaving his friends, worth leaving his, his family. And by the way, he didn't leave Sarah. You understand what I mean when I say he left his family. He left uh, the, his, his uh, extended family and left his home. He had to make his mind up that God was worth it to leave and to do all those things. So he was trusting God with his past. And that's one of the first things you have to do if you're ever going to follow the will of God is you have to make up your mind that God knows what your past and what your present is worth. And if he's got something for you, it's because he's got something better for you. So we see that he stepped out. The next thing he did, verse 9, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. We see first off he stepped out, but secondly we see he sojourned. I like to say this is Abraham trusting God with his present, trusting God with the moment. At first, he trusted God with his past, that what God was telling him and what God was offering him was worth more than what his stability and his comfort was worth, and so he was going to trust God with it. But now he gets to where he thinks he's supposed to be going. He gets to the land of promise, and what does he find there? He finds the promise hadn't been fulfilled. And by the way, we see down in, I believe it's verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. The the thing that God promised Abraham was a lot bigger than just a plot of land in Israel. God was promising Abraham that he would be his God, that he'd dwell with him, that he'd give him a place of stability, that he'd give him a, a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Wherefore, he is not ashamed to be called their God. I mean, this was a big thing that God was offering Abraham. God wasn't offering him a war-torn piece of desert that every single person in the world seems to be fighting over. Now, I'm not saying there aren't very definite geographical promises made to Abraham and to the Jews. They are but understand that they are not the be-all, end-all of the promises that God made to Abraham. He gets there, and that land that God's promised him, it's overrun with giants. It's overrun with Canaanites, and Jebusites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Hittites. He gets there, and, it, you know, it kind of, uh, about like Christopher Columbus, you know, I mean, he got here and, and, you know, planned the flag and said, hey, I found it. The only problem, there's people here for him, Amen. It'd be like if I showed up to your backyard and claimed it for Toby Weber. You'd say, whoa, wait a minute. Well, Abraham gets there, and there's people already there. And so what did he do? He sojourned. He got there and he recognized that God had something greater for him, even in that moment, even in that place. 
And, you know, a lot of times, and I'm going to try to be careful how I say this, and I'm going to try to let the Holy Spirit lead me in everything that I say. And I try to always do that, but I'm keenly aware how important that is tonight. But, you know, sometimes the will of God is not a matter of where, it's a matter of when. And that's what it was for Abraham. Abraham was in the right place, but he got there, and what happened? There was a famine there. He got there, and then there was a famine there. And what did he do? He left the will of God, and he went down into Egypt. You know, a lot of times the will of God is just as much about the when as it is about the where. And we can be where God wants us to be, but not be there when He wants us to be, or He wants us there for a period of time because there's some things He's going to do and going to accomplish, and we get impatient on God, and we run down to Egypt where we think it's going to be better and where we think there's no famine. By the way, there was no famine in Egypt, but you know what there was? There was temptation. There was a snare. Abraham pulled his whole family out of the will of God to avoid a famine. And I just propose to you that there's worse famines than famines of wheat and grain. There's worse famines than that. And so he had to, by faith, trust God when he got there that this was where God wanted him to be. And I try to be careful sometimes with language like this because there's some folks, but I've learned this. Folks that want to believe something's the will of God, whether it is or not, they're going to believe it. They're going to believe it. You see people all the time that are out of the will of God. I mean, listen, I I, I mean, a silly old goose could tell they're out of the will of God. You don't have to have a a doctorate degree, and you don't even really have to be in tune with the Holy Ghost to see they're out of the will of God. Their life bears evidence of that, and they'll sit there and shout to the heavens that they're in the will of God, living in direct disobedience to the Word of God. But they'll say, we're in the will of God. And there's some folks like that. I'm aware of that. But those that are that way are just going to choose to be that way, no matter what anybody says, no matter what anyone does. But when we know something's the will of God, sometimes it doesn't turn out the way we expect it to turn out. But that doesn't make it not the will of God anymore. You see, it's not, it doesn't just take faith to get in the will of God. It takes, it takes faith to stay in the will of God. It takes faith to sojourn when you're in a place and it's not what you expected it to be. You say, well, that was easy for Abraham. Nobody was counting on him. That's not what our text says. Dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Isn't it interesting it says dwelling in tabernacles? You know why that's significant? Abraham had plenty enough money to build him a palace if he wanted to build him a palace, but he didn't. Do you know why he didn't? Because he believed that he was still sojourning even when he got there. The city that he had found was not the city that he was looking for. And that's borne down in the rest of the chapter when it says he, he's still looking for a city. He's still looking for a city which hath foundation. You say, what's that city, preacher? Just lay it out there. The city that God promised Abraham, and by extension all of the Jewish people, is the new Jerusalem that's coming down from the heavens. The place where God dwells with His people the place where Israel will be the crown of the world and no one will assault or assail her anymore. Abraham didn't see that in his lifetime. He died not having received the promise, but he saw them afar off. And so what did that do? That caused him to live in a certain way. It changed the way that he lived. Look down at verse 17. I see that he stepped out and I see that he sojourned. But the Bible says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried offered up Isaac. I see that by faith he sacrificed. Wherefore God is not... Well, if I get at the right verse, amen. And, that, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten Son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now, we're going to read verse 19, but let's just pause there for a second. Can, can we say just, I mean, handily that, that things weren't going how Abraham expected them to go? Could we say that and be fair? Abraham has set out, and you can maybe imagine what must have been in, in Abraham's mind. God says, Abraham, I'm going to bring you to a place like you've never seen before. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden for splendor. It's going to be like the dwelling of my tabernacle for glory. You're going to come there, and I'm going to dwell with you, and you're never going to be assaulted anymore. It's going to be the greatest thing that's ever happened. You can imagine Abraham as he sets out in faith, trusting God, and then he walks up, and he sees that land and says to himself, My, this isn't what I expected. But in faith, he trusts God with his present. And he continues to be faithful. 
He's clinging to this promise that God's going to give him a seed. And that seed will be Isaac. And in Isaac will his seed be called. In other words, through Isaac a nation will be built, a lineage will be started, and a great nation will arise out of Isaac. And so he says, okay, Lord, and he trusts the Lord. We're going to talk about Sarah here in a moment, but Sarah, who was too old to bear children, Abraham, who was practically too old, amen, both of them bear a child, a miracle child, a faith child. And through that, Isaac is born. And most of us know the story in its entirety. But now place yourself here at the foot of Moriah. God has called Abraham to now take Isaac, in whom all of his hopes and dreams have been vested, and to take him up upon Moriah and to kill him there. Abraham has trusted God with his past, and he has trusted God with his present. But now he must trust God with his future and do something that he cannot figure out. This is totally out of accordance with the plan of God for his life, you understand. I mean, you couldn't pick an action that would be more out of left field, so to speak, than to take Isaac, his only son, the the only son whom thou lovest, is what God said. I understand he had Ishmael, but when God spoke about it, he said, take thine son, thine only son Isaac. That's the only one that mattered to God. And in this son is vested all of the promises of God, all of the things that God said that he would do for Abraham that have not been accomplished yet. Abraham has faith that through Isaac, and through His seed, these promises will take place. God's going to make good on every one of them. All of that wrapped up in this young man. And now God says, I want you to take him and kill him. Will you trust me with your future? Boy, a lot of us are willing to trust God with our past. A few of us are willing to trust God with our present. But not very many of us will trust God with our future the way Abraham did. What was his mindset? Verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. That's interesting language right there. You know what it's saying? There's a hint that's given about it uh, back in, in the verses concerning Sarah, where it says in verse number 12, Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead. Now, we can take that either to mean Abraham or we can take that to mean Isaac. And I don't think either of them do damage to Scripture because I think both of them uh, could bear some truth. But I believe it's talking about Isaac when it says that. Him is as good as dead. In other words, there was no chance that Isaac should have been able to be born. Sarah's body was dead. There was no hope. There was no chance that Isaac would ever be born. But God did a miracle and God made it happen. And now, when he's asked to give this up, his reasoning to do so is this. If God's able to give him to me from the dead once, God's able to give him to me from the dead again. If God was able to do everything he's already done, then he's able to do it again and he's able to do more. I wonder why we'd be willing to trust God with our future. Could it be because we've judged him faithful in the dealings about our past and our present? We see faith sojourning in the life of Abraham. But then look at Sarah. We see not only the promise of faith, but in Sarah we see the power of faith. Very interesting language shift in this, because it says in verse number 11, through faith. Now, again, I told you last week, I've kind of got some ideas as to what that means, why there's a distinction between by faith and through faith. I, I sort of believe that when it says by faith, it's denoting faith doing something externally. But when it says through faith, it's denoting something that faith is doing to the individual that has faith. In other words, by faith, they accomplish these things in the world. But through faith, something was accomplished in them. But there may be some dispute about that. But there's no question that we see the power of faith working in the life of Sarah. We see three things that it gave her. Look at verse 11. Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. The first thing that faith gave her was it gave her strength. It strengthened her body, which was biologically dead. There was no reason to believe that a woman of her age would ever have a child, but faith accomplished something supernatural within her. 
Now, I understand that there is a temptation to try to take this truth and apply it to so many things in our life, things that I don't believe we have a scriptural right to apply them to. Again, I, I, you know me well enough to know I have no issue with God healing people because I've seen it happen time and time and time again. But I do think we have to be careful lest we try to take something that God did in Sarah's life and, and, and expect God to do it in our life as the will of God and be mad at God if He doesn't do it. It's not always God's will to heal. But can I give you something that is the will of God? It is the will of God for you to accomplish the will of God. It is the will of God for you to do the will of God. And as such, anything that you're lacking in doing the will of God, faith can give you to do the will of God. Just as God asked Sarah to do something impossible. you imagine how Sarah must have felt? I mean, it's one thing with Abraham because God asked Abraham to do something that was beyond his his, uh, ability to do. It was something that that for him he could do, but it was too big of a thing for him to do. God didn't ask Sarah to do a big thing, but what he asked her to do was biologically impossible. You imagine how desperate she must have been. Maybe that's why she responded in the way that she did. When she heard God say that, she laughed within herself. Abraham probably wouldn't have responded that way, not because he's real spiritual, but because he would have sort of felt a little conviction about laughing in God's face because he had a choice in whether he stepped out in faith or not. But here Sarah is, and God has said, you're going to bear a child, and Sarah just chuckles within herself. She just laughs within herself and says, it's impossible. It's impossible. God goes to Sarah and says, you laughed. She said, I didn't laugh. God said, yeah, you laughed. She said, well, okay, Lord, I did laugh. I know it didn't go that way, but that's kind of how I imagine it. Kind of imagine Sarah saying, well, it's silly, Lord. It's silly to think that me, a woman of this age, could do this. And then she had a choice to make. Would she grip hold of the promise of God and trust that He could do in her what she could not do herself, or would she continue to laugh and scoff? There's been a lot of people that God's tried to call into ministry that never went. You know why? Because they scoffed and laughed when God said it. said, <laughs> I could never do such a thing. Lots of people that God has tried to accomplish something great in their life, and it's never been accomplished because when God said, I want you to do this, they <laughs> scoffed and laughed. What a silly thought that God could use me to do something like that. Well, yeah, the fact that God used you or me is pretty silly, no matter how you look at it. But if God said He'll do it, God will do it. And we have an obligation to respond in faith. And so when she did this and responded in faith, what happened? She received the strength that she needed. You'd be amazed what God can do through you if you'll just trust Him. You'd be amazed what God can do through you if you'll just trust Him. We see the first thing faith gave her was strength. Look at the next phrase in verse 11. And was delivered of a child when she was past age. God gave her safety. wasn't an uncommon thing to die in childbirth at this time, especially a woman the age that Sarah was. It was a miracle that Sarah survived in giving birth to Isaac. But you know, that's how the will of God is. Anything God calls you into, God will see you through. And if He doesn't see you through it, it's because His intention was to take you out in the midst of it. It doesn't mean that God's failed when something happens. Missionaries, and uh, most of you remember the missionaries back in, in the 50s, the Elliots and the, uh, how the cannibalistic tribe murdered them. God didn't fail them. That was the will of God for them. But I'll say this, for every missionary that we try to look at and say that about, there's a lot of missionaries that don't make it into magazines and that don't make it into little anecdotal books about faith that God has proved and God has protected in just as dire situations. Anything that God calls you to do, He's going to watch over you and see you through that. God's not, God's not nearsighted. You understand? God doesn't only see in the immediate. He's the author, but He's also the finisher of our faith. And that tells me this, He's everything in between too. And so God gave her safety. And then finally, God gave her a springing up. What does it say in the next verse? Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. That's interesting language because it's saying two different things when it gives those two different analogies. The stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore. 
when it's talking about the sand of the seashore, it's always denoting the earthly people of Israel. But when it's denoting the stars in the sky, it's always denoting spiritual Israel. Those that have by faith uh, accepted the Lord and come unto Him. That's what the book of Galatians teaches us, that not all uh, which are of Israel uh, are of Israel. Not all which are of Abraham are of Abraham. And if we are uh, children by faith, then we are counted faith uh, righteous with faithful Abraham. And so God was able to bring to fruition the things that He was trying to accomplish in her life. And I, I'm not going to labor on it, but let me just say it again. Even if it's an echo, even if it's a broken record, you'd be amazed the things God can accomplish through you. We sort of have this uh, compartmentalized mentality about Christianity. There's the people that do things and then the rest of us. Am I right? There's the people that do things and then the, then the rest of us. There's a few people that do things and then there's the rest of us. There's the people they write books about and they do lots of things. There's the people that uh, have a name in, in society and they do uh, a few things, but not as many as the ones they write books about. And then there's the people prominent in your life, the pastor or the associate pastor or an evangelist or, or a missionary, and they do a lot of But then there's just us. There's just us is what we think about. Who was Sarah that from her <laughs> such a nation should spring up? Who was Sarah, the wife of, uh, of a Syrian ready to perish? A gen, or, or not a gen, but a pagan woman living in pagan darkness? But you see, that's why it's by grace, is because God shouldn't have been able to use her. But, but the very fact that He shouldn't have been able to use her was the very reason that He could use her. You see, God's looking for opportunities to exercise His grace in people's lives. And that's true of saved people, just like it's true of lost people. You say, I, there's no way God could do anything through me. You're the very person God could do something through. The very people that God can't do anything through is the ones that everybody expects Him to do something through. Because when that happens, people attribute the glory and the, and the fame and the good works to the person that's done them rather than to the God that enabled them to be done. You're the very person. That's why God has chosen the small things of this world, the weak things of this world. Lester Olaf, I thought about this when my father-in-law sang that song, and I, there's all these little quotes that Lester Olaf, you know, is known for, and one of them was this, that I, I'll, I'll never get away from. He always said, you don't have to worry about getting too small for God, it's getting too big for God that you have to worry about. And that's true. Sarah was able to, to do great and mighty things, not because she was great and mighty, but because she served a great and mighty God. And the smaller and more insignificant that you are, the bigger and greater and mightier that your God seems when He does something. And so, just as he could do something in her life, he can do something in your life. Now, we see the promise of faith and the power of faith, but then there's a parenthetical statement of faith. And I'm not going to say a lot about this, uh, but look what it says in verse 13. This is a parenthetical statement. God breaks from the narrative and begins to give us uh, some truths that are so important that he must interject in the midst of this discourse to tell us this. He says, These all died in, the fa in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Notice first off the conclusion of their faith. The conclusion of their faith was that in this life, they didn't realize the promises. They saw them afar off. They embraced them. They confessed them. But they did not see them fulfilled and answered. You know, the truth of the matter is this. We can't see the other side of the coin or the other side of the tapestry. If we could, things would look a lot different. Just because you live for God, that doesn't mean everybody's going to clap for you. In fact, truthfully, they'll probably throw rocks at you, amen? Throw a shoe at you. Remember when that fellow threw a shoe at the president that time? That's what they'll do to you. If it wasn't for the Bible, most of these men would be obscure. Isn't that true? If it wasn't for the Bible, most of these men, we wouldn't know their names. And not just because we wouldn't be saved and we wouldn't care, but I mean, if it wasn't for the Bible and the fact that the truths concerning them had been recorded in a book that will never fade away or perish, we wouldn't know much about them. And yet, they were still doing the will of God. Doing the will of God doesn't always give you a lot of prominence. But understand that God's still keeping a record. And God's still keeping a score. 
We see the conclusion, then we see their confession, verse 14. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Can I ask you something? Could people by your life tell that you're expecting something greater one day? I don't mean a new car. I don't mean a new house. I mean, could they see by your life that you're a Christian and a pilgrim and a stranger in this earth? Or would you fit right in? Sometimes I'd fit right in. Maybe sometimes you'd fit right in. If the Bible says of these people of faith that they that declare such things, well, what things? That they were strangers, they were pilgrims, that they were seeking a country. Abraham could have built him a palace, but he dwelt in tents. You know why? Because where he was at wasn't where he was going to put down his roots. And you know the truth is, where we're at is not where we're putting down roots, at least not in this life. They that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And then notice thirdly the confidence of them. Verse 15, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. You know, there was nothing to say Abraham couldn't have gone back. Nothing to say that. In fact, Abraham comes to a point and time in his life where he's got 300 hired servants. That, that I mean, he pays them enough and owns them enough, they can go to war for him. Abraham could have gone back if he wanted to go back, but he didn't. You know why? He was not mindful of that country. You know what that means to be mindful of something, don't you? Sometimes, like, we'll say things like this, the preacher preached forever because he wasn't mindful of the time. You know what we're saying? We're saying it wasn't at the ever-present and forefront of your mind. You know, the quickest way to get out of the will of God is to dwell on what the world has to offer you. And we have some say in what we dwell on. We don't have all the say. I understand there's some things hard to get away from. I understand there's some things that arrest and, and grip our attention and our mind. But, but we have a lot of say in what we occupy our mind with. And if they had been mindful, they might have had opportunity to have returned. I like the way the Bible gives that language where it says that they might have had opportunity to have returned. I think what's being said there is not that there's a chance that they would have had an opportunity, but sort of they didn't even know whether they'd have an opportunity because they never had a desire to. If they had been mindful, they might have had an opportunity, but who knows? Why? Because they weren't mindful of that country. It's not to say Abraham didn't backslide and make mistakes, but when he set out, he never set to go back. He went down into Egypt. Uh, the, the descendants of Abraham were found in almost every corner of the globe, but the only time that they went back to Babylon was when they was carried back to Babylon. They weren't mindful to go back. And so they had confidence that God had something for them. Verse 16, But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Now I want to say a few words in closing about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. I spent a lot of time really thinking on these three individuals because a lot is said about Abraham and about Sarah. And there's some things said about Isaac, but he's sort of the object uh, or, or, or the subject, however you want to say it, the object of the discussion. Not really him as, a, as an individual, but him a, as a manifestation and as a symbol of that promise God gave. But concerning the faith that Isaac and Jacob and Joseph had, we have three things that are said. And if you read it too quick, you'll miss the background, the context. Verse 20 says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. And by faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. There's some transitions that take place within the lives of those three men. For one thing, we see that encompassing the lives of those three men, they go from an individual with his wife to a a large family and then to a nation by the time we get to verse 23. Another thing that's interesting that takes place is they leave the land of promise and go into the land of darkness. During the life of Jacob and Joseph, 
We know how that Joseph was sold into slavery and how that he was exalted in, in Potiphar's house and then, then cast into prison and then exalted in all the land of Egypt. And he was the second in command. And we know about the seven years of famine and the seven years uh, of, of, of fatness and, and, and all the things that God did. But then the children of Israel or the family of Joseph stays there and all 75 of them live there. And then the next time you see them in Scripture... It's no longer just a family, but it's an entire nation. They started in Canaan as a family, but in Egypt they became a nation. Now stop and think about that. In the place where God wanted them to be, the place where the promises of God were to be manifest, they were just a family. But in the darkness of adversity and affliction, there they became a nation. You see, what these three men present to us is the perpetuity of faith. If I can say it this way, faith is the long game, not the short game. Faith is the long game. And that's what we find concerning Abraham. Beginning with Abraham, you sort of begin to see the plan of God formulating. You understand? I mean, Abel just simply deals with worship, how we approach to God. Enoch deals with walking with God, or the God that was revealed at least. And and Noah deals with the fact that God warned he was going to destroy the world. But in Abraham, you see the plan of God formulating. But it's not a short plan. It's a long plan. And so as such, just like in any game that you play, if your strategy is to play the long game, there's some things that you're going to do. Now I want you to notice them with me. We see in... Isaac, faith, making declarations. What does it say? Look again in verse number 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning what? Things to come. Let me say this. If you live by faith in this world that we live in, it's going to change your language. It's going to change the things you talk about. What did Isaac say? Well, in Genesis 27, he blessed Jacob. And you can read where he blesses Esau as well in your own time, but... But just for, for time's sake, we'll only read where he blessed Jacob. We know he thought he was blessing Esau, but he was blessing Jacob. And he said this, Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven, and the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. Now, could you imagine what a fool Isaac would have seemed to most people if they had heard that blessing? It's a pretty distinct blessing, you understand. He's not just saying, I want the Lord to prosper you. But he's saying, literally, everyone that blesses you, Isaac will be, or Jacob, will be blessed. Everyone that curses you, Jacob, is going to be cursed. Most people at that time, here they are, just a family dwelling in tents and tabernacles. They're not the lords over that land. They don't even seem to have an inheritance there. They just got to the show, amen? They showed up in the second act. They get there, it's a populated land. There was no reason to believe that this blessing could have come true, that God would give them of the dew of heaven, that, that, that all nations would bow down and serve them there. But you see, faith causes you to look at that which the eye cannot see and the spiritual eye must perceive. Let me just say that I'm not living for the immediate. I'm living for the eternal. Faith makes some declarations. Notice, secondly... We see in Jacob faith-making distinctions. Look at it, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. Now, do you remember when that happened? In fact, the preacher last year, Brother McBride, preached on this, this very truth. God says to Joseph, he says, the sons that you bore when you were in Egypt are going to be my sons. I'm not going to treat, I'm not give them, going to give them the portion of a grandson. I'm going to give them the portion of a son. And he says, I want you to bring those two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to me. And, and I'm going to adopt them. As Reuben and Simeon are mine, so are Ephraim and Manasseh. They're going to be mine. And I'm going to bring them into that relationship and that covenant that a father has with their son. Joseph brings both of those boys in. And Manasseh was the oldest. And whenever they... God, uh, whenever Joseph brings them in, he does something very interesting. Joseph is, is, or Jacob is sitting there, and he's got his right hand out, which is the hand you'd bless 
for prominence. You would bless with the right hand the oldest. And upon them you give the greatest and grandest blessing. And so whenever Joseph brings the boys in, he puts Manasseh at his left hand, which would be Joseph's or Jacob's right hand. And he puts Ephraim at his right hand, which would be Jacob's left hand. And whenever Jacob reaches out to bless the sons, the Bible says that he blessed Ephraim before Manasseh. He guided his hands wittingly. He crossed his hands and blessed the boys in the opposite manner. And Joseph says to his father, says, no, 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 Dad, you've got it wrong. You've blessed the wrong. And he knows, he says, I know what I'm doing. He says, Manasseh will be great, but Ephraim, he'll be greater. That tells me that that old man knew how important it was to make the proper distinctions. Why? Because the things he was doing would affect eternity. Some would look at an old man like that and say, well, what does it matter? Some would look at an old man like that and say, well, you ought to do it the way people expect you to do it. But because he understood that the actions he was taking would affect eternity... He made the proper distinction. Can I say it this way? Some folks look and they say, why do you make such a big deal about music? Why do you make such a big deal about music? What's wrong with, with the, the contemporary crowd? What's, what's the big deal? Well, it's not a big deal unless you think those things affect eternity. I think they do. I don't think music determines if a person's going to go to heaven or, or go to hell, but I do think music can help a, a person grow in the Lord. I do think there's certain music that honors and pleases the Lord and certain music that doesn't honor and doesn't please the Lord. You say, what's the big deal, preacher? It's not a big deal. Well, it is. If you believe in eternity and you're living for eternity, you're going to make distinctions like that because it's going to affect things. What does it matter what Bible we use? What's the big deal? They say pretty much the same thing. It's what uneducated people say about it. If you ever open those Bibles and compare them, you'll find out they don't say pretty much the same thing. But what's the big deal? What's the big deal? It's easier to understand. It's, it's why does it matter so much? And by the way, it's not easier to understand. Man, I, I don't know. Maybe the Lord wants me to preach on the King James Bible because I just can't get away from it. It's not. The King James Bible is written on a fifth grade reading level. Can I just give you a real, real quick illustration? I can give you a simple sentence with a few words that may be unfamiliar to you, you can figure out the words and understand that sentence. But if I give you a complicated sentence with familiar words, there's nothing you can do with that. That's the difference. That's the significance of it. But people say, well, why, why make such a big deal about it? You alienate people, preacher. You alienate people. I found this. You don't alienate new Christians. And you don't alienate people that are truly humbled and submitted and surrendered to the Lord because they're willing to accept the truth. The people that you alienate is usually the folks that have got an agenda. That's the folks that you alienate. Why does it matter, preacher? Well, it does matter if you believe it affects eternity. If you believe that what Bible you use can determine how a disciple grows and the things that they believe, and I do believe that. I believe it can affect that doesn't mean a person has to be saved out of a King James Bible. It's the gospel. Uh, that's the power of God unto salvation. But I do believe it affects the way people grow in the Lord. I believe when you take the blood out, when you take the deity out, when you take the lordship out of the Bible, I believe that affects how a new convert grows. And if we believe that these things affect eternity, then we're right to make distinctions about these things. I remember hearing a preacher, well, it may have been here, I don't remember, but he was talking about running track when he was a young man and how that when he would, when he would run track that, that a lot of the, the young people would, would wear the big tall socks and, uh, at that time. And, and when he ran track, instead of wearing the big socks, he actually, you're going to giggle about this, but he'd take the socks off and he would actually shave his legs to cut down wind resistance. Folks say, that's silly. Well, it's silly unless you're trying to win the race. Unless you think it matters. You see, people that are people of faith make distinctions about some things. And then finally, I want you to notice this. We see faith making declarations and faith making distinctions. But finally, we see faith making preparations. Verse 22, By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment, 
concerning his bones. This is interesting where it says that he gave commandment concerning his bones because I've always assumed that that commandment that it's speaking of is the commandment that he gave the children of Israel. But I don't think that's really what's being said. And this is why. Listen to what it says in verse number 24 through 26 of Genesis 50. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died being 110 years old. Now this is how the book of Genesis ends. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. See, I believe that the commandment that he gave, it's not necessarily talking about the oath that he took. I believe the oath that he, that he made the children of Israel take is what's being denoted when it says he made mention of the children of Israel departing Egypt. I think the commandment that he gave is to his servants and, and to those that were around him to say, when I die, I don't want you to bury me in a tomb. When I die, I don't want you to just, uh, to just cast my body aside. I want you to embalm it. I want you to place it in a, in a coffin, which would have probably been sort of, uh, like a big box or like a, a... You know what, you've seen the, the old pharaohs, right? I want you to place me in something so that I can be carried because one day we as a people are leaving here and I want to be prepared when the day comes that we leave. I believe when we're people of faith, it causes us to live in a way that we're making preparations for eternity. We're making preparations let me just tell you something. One of these days you're going to stand before Jesus Christ. And the way that you've lived is going to determine how pleasant that day is for you. Oh, the way you've lived is not what determines whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. The Bible's clear about that. But you know what Paul said about the judgment seat of Christ? He said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I believe it's going to be a beautiful and blessed day when we leave this world. But I do believe we're going to have a lot to answer for. So how do I have less to answer for, preacher? How, how can I stand better on that day? Well, you have to be a person of faith. And you have to live by faith. See, people that really believe Jesus is coming back live like He's coming back. People that really believe that they're to lay their treasure up in heaven and not on earth, they live that way. People that really believe that they're going to have to give an account for every word that's spoken for everything that they do and for every thought that enters their mind, they live that way. Say, sounds like a terrible way to live. Oh, no. No, it is terrible if you spend all your time mindful of that country from whence you came. But if you don't spend all your time mindful of that country from whence you came, you find there's a joy in being mindful of the country to which you're going. And that has the ability to change the way that you live.